Welcome to the Sports Card Lessons Podcast with your host, Big Ken, a retired teacher bringing you lessons each week he's learned in the hobby by taking you behind the table and inside the mind of a dealer and a collector. Sit back and relax. There won't be a test. The only thing being graded here is the cards. Welcome to the Sports Card Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Big Ken. Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on a streaming service, please like, subscribe, and hit that notification bell. You'll be notified whenever I drop any new content. Welcome, and thanks for being here. Today's episode, as promised, I'm super excited to introduce today's guest. He's the co-founder of Card Ladder, host of The Crossover. Welcome, Chris McGill. Chris, how you doing today? Welcome. Doing well, Big Ken. It's really cool to be on the show, and uh, I don't know if I can follow up your collaborations with Rob, the uh, sports card therapist, big <laughs> shoes to fill, but uh, we'll give it a shot. Yeah, well, you know what? It's always great to have on new guests, right? It's always great to to be switching it up, and, and uh, I, I really appreciate you being here today because I, I think, I mean, my listeners know Card Ladder, right? But... We all, we all have questions. Like if I had 10 people here, I bet you there'd be 10 different questions. So, you know, I, I, I hope I could cover it all and, and, and get it out there. But, you know, speaking of Card Ladder, right, um, co-founder, one of the things that I often wonder when anyone starts a business, right, what it looked like when you started, what the, what the final product looked like. Because no matter what we do, and I'll even say, for instance, with this, my podcast, when I started this, I was going all in one direction, but then it ends up being something completely different. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, your, your, your vision for it and where it ended up. Yeah, it was definitely a result of the circumstances at the time, Ken. So um, if I back up a little bit, my, uh, one of the other co-founders, Josh Johnson and myself had been collaborating on content here and there. He had me on his cardboard Chronicles channel, maybe in like 2018. And, you know, we just built a, a great relationship. And even though like what we collected didn't overlap that much, like we both collected nineties, but he collected more so. Penny Hardaway, I collected more so Michael Jordan. Uh, and then he collected LeBron, obviously, heavily and still does. But we still just like, um, just had a, we just clicked. We just, something just, we got along very well from the very beginning. And we would always kind of bat around ideas, discuss, the, you know, just, we both just, uh, we both had podcasts. I think we both were just very, energetic and, and enthusiastic to to uh, contribute something to the hobby community, to, to carve a little place in it for ourselves, to offer something. But we just weren't quite sure what it would be yet. And we would talk a lot about the market. You know, we would talk about teaming up on stuff. But life was in the way too, Ken. I mean, I was in law school at the time. And back in 2018, 2019, he was working as an engineer a software engineer. And, you know, it, we, we hobbied when we could, but, um, you know, but then something happened. So we had been discussing sort of building a piece of software. What could it look like? What would be the, the features of it? And I came up with a little business plan of sort of, because what I had done was um, late in 2019 and early 2020, I started um, publishing and circulating for like a $10 fee, uh, a spreadsheet that I spent, you know, a few days on. And I just sort of would manually do all this research on different Michael Jordan cards. And then I would organize the sales histories and images and percentage changes and stuff in a very rudimentary fashion into a spreadsheet. And I uh, just made it available uh, to listeners of the House of Jordans podcast if they wanted sort of a way to support the podcast or whatever. Hey, you could buy this for 10 bucks. And, you know, a few hundred people bought it. 
And so I, once that happened, I went to Josh and I was like, hey, like people are interested in getting information about the market. And the way I'm doing this and organizing it is so rudimentary and it's so unsophisticated compared to what you and I could do. And especially, and then we, and then let me, I would be remiss not to mention Christina, who was, you know, a host of the House of Jordan's podcast and just an instrumental aspect of launching the card later business. And my brother, Nick, who does all the social media, he does the video editing, he, He's our content, our chief content officer. So, uh, you know, we saw that there was a, a, a possible blueprint to success by providing people with market information. And, and the market information I was providing was just like 90s Michael Jordan insert. So it was like, what if we expanded the scope of this? And I, I made this little business plan and Josh was like, hey, this is awesome. And we started planting some seeds in terms of like gathering data and building out the infrastructure for the software. And then uh, Rudy Gobert touched a microphone uh, while he was sick with uh, COVID-19 and that got his teammates sick. And then that caused this sort of like ripple effect of just sports league shutting down and stay at home orders coming down. I mean, I obviously I remember it through the sports lens. Yeah. I'm sure there were other things that were causing the state home orders too, but I remember that so vividly in early March of 2020. And all of a sudden, all my coursework, I was in my final semester of law school anyway, but all my courses were converted to pass fail. I couldn't go into the campus anymore. Um, all of a sudden I didn't have to put, you know, I only had to put 20 or 30% of the effort into law school that I previously had to put into. And plus I was coasting in my, uh, with a little bit of senioritis as well. And then Josh uh, also began working from home, which saved him some commute time and stuff. And all of a sudden we just had a little extra time, a little extra intensity, a little extra effort, a little extra energy, just sort of from this bizarre, just looking for a distraction from the bizarre circumstances that the world was in. And all of a sudden, you know, Josh is just architecting this, remarkable infrastructure for card ladder and you know we're feverishly gathering data and um you know trying to develop and build out features and stuff and and uh all of a sudden josh and it was really josh like i'm I'm such a patient hesitant guy ken but josh was like hey man we need to put out a minimum viable product we need to see what this if this is going to work and so we just sort of said, all right, well, let's just put something out there on on June 23rd, 2020. And we, we pushed it out again. And then, you know, I'll stop there. There's there's I can go on forever. I'll stop. So so you, you guys push this out uh, and, 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 and kind of a, a, a two part question that you could bring them both together, because I know I've listened to you speak on other podcasts you know, in the past where you were talking about, I mean, I know you're a numbers guy putting 12 to 14 hours a day, just inputting, inputting, inputting data. Um, so at some point, Collector's Universe comes calling, right? And and if you just want to kind of talk to that or what Collector's Universe and, and kind of, did your role change? I mean, at that point when they came, did your role change? Are you still putting all this data in? Are you still do? Are you doing other things with the company now? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So about a year and a half after we had our MVP launch, we were acquired by Collector's Holdings. And that is... Um, that's always just an ex- <laughs> the experience of you know the paperwork and the diligence and the um, just <laughs> it's, it's something I wouldn't wish upon anybody. When when the uh, when the deal closed, uh, I was so exhausted that I just I it w- it was like uh, it was during a holiday week, I think a Thanksgiving week, and I just as soon as like the word came that it was done and <clears throat> signed and executed and everything, I just went into my bed clothes on and I just passed out for the rest of that day and into the next day. 
and I was so exhausted. I was sick. I was physically deteriorated. <laughs> it, it was, it was just the combination of the stress of that plus continuing to fully operate the business, which already is a very stressful and taxing thing. Yeah. Um, it was wild. Uh, I would, I, I don't recommend it unless you actually have to do it. But with that said, yeah. joining collectors was the ultimate privilege for a startup business in the hobby. The company has been beyond supportive uh, in helping facilitate us with whatever we ask for. Mm -hmm. And we've, um, we've retained our, our roles. Um, and ha but having the backing of collectors is certainly lets me sleep a little bit easier at night. Yep. And knowing that there's just a, a team, an army of awesome people there to collaborate with if the opportunity should arise or the need should arise is a pretty comforting psychological feature as well. But at the end of the day, we haven't really changed much. We've added a few researchers, but I think it's, it's, um, it's pretty tough to cut it as a researcher on our team, you know? So, um, but we've added a few and yeah, we just, we honestly operate identically to how we did prior to acquisition. Just now we've got some more resources at our back and uh, we've got firmer collaborations in place with some of the other companies of collectors holdings. Nice, nice. Uh, the future. I mean, everything's always changing, right? Every time, you know, I, I, I hear you'll pop up, you'll be able to, we have some exciting news and things like that. So anything mm -hmm. you can talk about that you're working on now, anything coming up or mm -hmm. may, maybe even get us a little excited to, uh, to be to be waiting for something yeah well i wouldn't say this um just to say it if, if there wasn't anything like big in the in the pipeline at the moment i wouldn't i wouldn't say that there was i would just say hey look you know we're <clears throat> we're where we are but uh we do have something pretty exciting in the pipeline um well it's exciting to us let me put that caveat it when maybe when it comes out you know power users will really appreciate it. And maybe the general public might appreciate it. They might not, but we've got <clears throat> some stuff. I, I can't give specifics, Ken, because That's Christina fine. will kill me. <laughs> <laughs> she hates when I do that. So <laughs> let me just say that um, this, this is one of our bigger innovations from the last year or so. And right. it's, and Josh is cooking it up right now. And um, he's excited about it. I'm excited about it. It's, Give it about a month or so, and I think you'll see it show up, and it's going to be pretty sweet. Great, great. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So one thing I often, I, you know, like I often think about, especially when people are in certain roles or they're privy to, like you're privy to a lot of data, and not not because you're special, it's because you consume all this data, right? So when you see things like start to take off like in this hobby over the years you see like with your data and it starts this you start looking at it and you say oh my like these specific or certain cards are set the prices are really going up on it and you could say i know from experience from doing this long enough that that was never going to hold that's going to crash down or do you sometimes you look at it and you say oh wow that's interesting you know is is the hobby turning this way or that way i i don't even know if that's a question but it's it's like something like i throw out to you like you must see this all the time like certain trends like coming and going a lot with with this with your data that you collect yeah well you know one of the functions of my job is every night um, I, I manage a catalog of tens of thousands of cards personally. So I built the profiles for them. I did the historical research on them <clears throat> and then I monitor every incoming sale and, and I review every incoming sale for possible errors or, uh, shill bidding or, you know, uh, <clears throat> a, a sham sale that's designed to manipulate the market in one way or the other. And so, you know, every night I see probably on average around a thousand to 2000 new sales that I look at. And I usually do that from around 
10 at night to about two in the morning. But also, you know, I'll, I'll periodically work, you know, I'll take like 30 minutes this afternoon and I'll just get a head start on some of them before, before the, the night, uh, the night dump comes in. Um, and so I, I see a ton of data specifically of cards that I'm pretty well versed in because I, I researched them already once. Uh, and it can be, it, it can be tough to spot trends when you're just sort of in this sea of thousands of sales every night. <clears throat> but we have tools built that sort of help me and the other researchers who do similar jobs. It helps us look at previous sales, you know, in the last three months and stuff and kind of identify what's been going on. And I will see stuff occasionally. Like <clears throat> I hope, uh, I hope I've got this right because I did, I didn't look into it right before I came on, but if memory serves some of Cal Ripken Jr.'s cards um, in a PSA 10, his rookie and some of his earlier cards uh, that I follow basically like doubled in value over the summer. Wow. And I, and I just kind of remembered watching it happen um, <laughs> as, you know, as the weeks rolled by. Yeah. I just remember seeing, and I, you know, looking at the graph for the card and saying, like, man, this was like five grand. And now it's 11. Hmm. Um, and, do you, and do you say to yourself, like, do you question it saying, oh, like there may be like shill bidding or there may be somebody just pumping the market up? I mean, and, uh, I, yep. I mean, I don't know if you have tools or algorithms or something that kind of will take a look at that and tell you right away, like, this is the real thing or there's yep. something off about this. Oh, no, I have to. Uh, I have to be skeptical about it. Uh, and I've, I've learned to be skeptical about it, but I have to be, too. And, you know, but, but things markets do sort of find organic surges of interest from time to time. And then, you know, as I started investigating it and asking around people who are more knowledgeable than me in that particular market, what might be going on here? And a few people told me that perhaps this is related to the sudden influx and in interest in in-person autographs on rookie cards of iconic players, especially players who don't have like the flashy one of one rookies or the pack insert autograph rookies. Like there's this, there's this like growing interest in, in those particular cards. And so there's probably some people who develop the theory of if, if I can get a PSA 10 of this Cal Ripken and I can crack it out very carefully and I can get him to sign it carefully. <laughs> and then get it back in the slot and then somehow, you know, get, <laughs> get it graded a 10 again with a 10 autograph too, yeah. you know, that's going to shoot the value up of this card. Absolutely. And so I said, that's a decent theory, but, but, but then we should be seeing it play out in other similar players too. And then it was also pointed out to me, well, Ripken has been doing a few private signings recently. Um, so, you know, that, that was an interesting explanation it was an interesting situation and at the end of the day though like when i do have to make a judgment call or any other researcher has to make a judgment call that hey we're gonna verify this sale is being likelier than not to have been paid you know at the end of the day there's always a, a chance that i'm just wrong mm -hmm. or that the researcher who's doing it is wrong and we made a mistake like i i investigate i look at the bid patterns i look at the feedback of the seller i look at the feedback of the winner Look at the feedback of the second highest guy, the feedback of the third highest guy. How how high were the how how large were the bid increments? Does somebody just bid a hundred times on this and push the price up? Is it showing in Terapeak? Um, does the seller have a history of relists? What does the seller's feedback look like? You know, um, are there other copies available for cheaper on other marketplaces? And we have a bunch of different marketplaces we look at. You know, we, we look at a lot of different factors, especially that, that, that we especially have to have to take very seriously when you see something like that happening, like yeah. Cal Ripken card doubling in value. And then, you know, another example is Deion Sanders. You yeah. know, his cards right now are increasing in price, but he's his cards are a situation where like his score rookie, I'm seeing that one get shilled every day. Hmm. Um and I'm not approving those sales. I'm sending those sales to what we call purgatory. Yeah. 
And because it's just zero feedback bidders winning, bidding against other zero feedback winners. And I'm seeing instances of relists from certain sellers and, you know, <laughs> and another player who randomly gets shilled a lot. I don't know why <laughs> is Russell Westbrook. Russell Westbrook just, he has the most shilled cards of any player I look at. Wow. <laughs> so weird. And no reason, no rhyme or reason for that. No. I can't think of one. Maybe just uh, there's just somebody out there who's a shady figure out there who's just trying to keep those Westbrook top strong rookie prices yeah. high. I don't know. And how how do you factor in or do you at all factor in like in-person sales, like all these these shows, you know, these card shows all over the country? I mean, there's a lot of cards being sold, you know, those, those aren't, you know, uh, it's not not data that you can go out and just get without actually just talking to people or being there in person. So do you factor, is there any way you factor any of that information in or is all strictly public sales, something that, that you can actually look and read and. Yeah, well, it's a great question. And the, uh, the in-person market for sports cards is large and it's, it, it includes shows. It includes people visiting their local card shop and buying a card out of the display case and it involves trades and trade nights. And we see such a tiny percentage of that data ever make it to our platform. The only way that that data would make it to us is when somebody personally reports it to us. And there are some card shop owners who will report sales to us. If it's like of note, you know, if it's a, if it's a card that doesn't sell very often mm -hmm. and same thing with, uh, with deals that happen in shows or over social media or in some other medium that we don't have eyes on because they don't publish their sales. Um, in those cases, you know, we, we rely on people to, to publicly report or to, to private, to report that private sale to us through the private sale reporting mechanism that we have. And then we have measures that we apply to vet those sales. So, we require that the person reporting the sale be a person of good standing and of 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 a decent reputation in the hobby. They shouldn't have any reputation of scamming people or deceiving people or, you know, being a, a pumper or a hype artist of any sort. And the uh, the sale must have proof of transaction, whether that's, you know, a, a screenshot of a of a bank wire combined with an invoice or something of that nature. Yep. Um, and then we scrutinize that to make sure the dates line up and the memo line says what it's supposed to say and so on and so forth. And then whoever discloses or reports the sale, whether it's the owner of the card shop or it's a person who did the deal over social media or two people who made a deal at a show, uh, they have to, one of, one of the parties to the deal, the buyer or the seller, needs to be willing to attach their name publicly to the sale. Their name will show up in the notes section of that private sale on, um, on card letter. Once we log it, if, if we approve it. And then of course we also scrutinize the sale. Is this sale consistent with, you know, where the market roughly we would expect it to be for this card. And if it's not, why isn't it? If, if, if we perceive that there's going to be a risk on us, that we're going to end up validating a sale that maybe doesn't make a lot of sense or is suspect, is suspicious in some way, we're very cautious about that. Yeah. Um, it's not the end of the world if we don't verify a sale. You know, yeah. it's, that's okay. That doesn't mean the sale didn't happen. It just means that it didn't quite reach our level of scrutiny. Yeah. Um, and I would think, I would think too, that's on cards, right? That probably maybe, maybe haven't sold in 10 years or eight years or something like that. Not like, you know, a card that's selling every day or once a week or once a month that somebody's going to contact you and say, Hey, this card's usually selling for 2000, but I paid 3000, you know, it, there's no, no reason for you to have to put that up. Right. But if it's a card that hasn't sold in say five years or seven years or something like that, and now there's a private sale, that would be more important to, to get up there. You nailed it. That's ex that's exactly right. And then for the cards that do have lots of or a fair amount of transactions 
on eBay and the other public marketplaces, there's not really a lot of utility gained from somebody reporting that private sale or for us like monitoring it happening at shows. Um, it's, it certainly impacts the volume metrics. Mm-hmm. So if, if at a show, you know, 100 Patrick Mahomes prism rookies uh, are dealt, bought, sold and traded, that that impacts the volume metrics. Right. Like from a big picture hobby point of view, like that, that's money moving around and changing hands and cards moving around and changing hands with batters. Uh, and in an ideal world, we would have all of that, but we don't. And it's not an ideal world, but at least in the case of a card like that, it's it's transacting on eBay once every few days or sometimes multiple times a day. So it's not too difficult to get a gauge on the range of where this card has been selling in the recent past. Yeah. And that's one of the things for me as a dealer, right, to go set up at shows. That's one of the things when I'm acquiring cards, I want to know how popular is this card? Like, are, are people buying this card daily, weekly? You know, is it is it a card that I'm going to put in my case and people are going to be excited to come by or nobody's buying this card and I'm going to put it in my case and nobody's going to want to buy it. Right. So it so a lot of that, too. It's good for me just to know what's the popularity of this card. Are are people buying it? Are people excited about this right now? Because if they are, I am. I want to put it in the case so they can buy it. Yeah. And that makes a ton of sense. That's that's valuable information to know. Yeah. 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 So switching just a little bit, switching lanes up here. Uh, I think we can both agree there's a ton of money in the hobby, right? Um, do you agree, disagree uh, when people talk about these cards as investments? Oh, I love this question. Um, all right. But uh, to give a little background or substance to uh, the observation that you made, which is that there's a ton of money in the hobby, and to uh, promote a little card lighter feature briefly, if you don't mind. Not at all. <laughs> there, we, have a, we have a new tab called Industry Health. It's like a few months old. And, um, or maybe it's just called Industry. No, it, sorry. It's just called Industry. And it gives you these big picture metrics that um, hadn't been made available before. And so one of the big picture metrics you can see is the monthly sales volume for roughly the total secondary market for trading cards. And this includes, you know, this is trading cards. This is sports cards. This is TCG. um, And this includes boxes and cases and packs that sell on like auction-based marketplaces so this wouldn't so it's not a very it's not a huge number that like we're not looking at david adams we're not looking at blowout but we're looking at like boxes and packs and singles that sell on ebay and golden and pwcc and heritage and stuff and they have a few you know that run from time to time but basically uh over the course of 2023 starting in january the that total volume of the secondary market for trading cards online was 187 million. Then in February it was 174. In March it was 175. We st- we hover around that number for the ensuing months, and then finally we get to August, which is the most recent month on record as of the time of this recording. In August 2023, had a volume of 217 million, which is uh, by far the largest month of this year and it was maybe a top five or top six month ever so with with the highest month on our record being 251 million which was february of 2022 and so you know 217 million is uh it's a really large number (laughs) and okay so that's just to back up the, the idea that there's a lot of money in cards. There is. And depending upon who you ask, you know, people speculate. If, if you were to combine the secondary market for trading cards with the with the market that, can, that you know, David Adams and Blowout and the, the online retailer market and the local card shop market and the breaking market and the direct-to-consumer market, you have boxes and cases and singles and products and supplies and events and everything. 
you know, there's there's some auction houses and the, then the fees that they generate. There's some people who think that the size of the trading card industry could be $10 billion in that range, uh, maybe more, you know. I mean, that puts it on, that puts it roughly in the ballpark as as being the same size in terms of annual revenue as professional sports leagues. I think the NBA registered an annual revenue of $10 billion within the last few years, although I think it's more now. And I, and I think the NHL is, is less than that. So that's the size and scope of the sports card industry, which I think is, it's, it's like a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's like a secret, you know, like it's, it's hush hush. It's like nobody really, it, it's tough to figure out, but it's also, it's mind blowing when you think about the size of this industry. Uh, so there's tons of money pouring into trading cards to your point. And then you get to the question of what invest investing, right? Like what's, yeah. what do we think about? I've seen some people make some valid points that the term investment probably isn't the right term that, that speculation might be a better term and they get technical, you know, and they say, look, there's certain properties that an investment has such as the ability to pay dividends or to generate income uh, that um, sports cars don't have. They don't have those properties. Say maybe speculation is a better term because speculation involves purchasing something on the speculative outlook that it, that it could increase in value. And so at a certain point we get to like splitting hairs. And I do think sometimes uh, people, not all the time, but I think sometimes people want to um, hush up the investment talk and pivot it over into speculation or gambling because they think that's that's pejorative. You know, they kind of want to put down cards. And so they sort of like want to push it that way. Hmm. But I don't think it needs to be that way. I think that if we can um, sort of just objectively strip away the the connotations that come with putting the word speculation on it and just sort of objectively look at it and say, well, a speculation involves risk. It involves making forecasts about the psychology of the buyers and sellers in a market. And in sports cars in particular, I think if you really start thinking about it carefully, it involves estimating and anticipating player performance. It involves um, thinking deeply about legacy and about how the culture and the media and the content surrounding sports impact a player's legacy and how the player's legacy impacts those mechanisms of communication. Sort of thinks about what will endear an athlete in the short term and in the long term in the hearts and minds of people who enjoy collecting cards. And as you sort of start thinking about and hypothesizing about these things. It's, I think it's fair to call it speculation. Um, and I, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's the bad word that some people think it is either to call it speculation, but okay. yeah, I, I, I do tend to see the validity of the criticisms um, that have been levied against. If you get technical that have been levied against calling it an investment. Hmm. I mean, and and it's really not anymore. That and I can and I can say for myself, right? So when I when I first jumped back into the hobby and I was I was buying cars for myself and I was setting up as a dealer. And a lot of times in my mind, I'm saying I'm buying this card because I feel the price is going to go up on it, or this player, or you know, more of a prospecting type of thing. Uh, and the longer I stayed in the hobby and doing what I'm doing, the longer I realized what people were saying, where I used to hear people say all the time, you know what, just buy the cards that you love and, and don't worry about whether the value goes up or not. Right. So if you get, you could see behind me all these Trinity Rodmans, right. So, you know, one of the things I did was I said, you know, I, a few players that I really like, I really like to watch that I want to collect and I feel I'm getting in on the ground floor. Right. So I buy all these cards. And I've gotten to a point now where I don't care. Like I wouldn't even look at the values of these cards compared to when I was buying cards. And I think most people, we were all in the kind of this frenzy 
is we all felt that these cards were going to go up. So I would be looking at these cards week, daily, weekly, monthly to see where's the value going. Every time the value went down, it was like my stocks, right? I'd be like, oh, you know, what's going on with my stocks? And then the value went up. I'd say, oh, look, I, I knew what I was doing. I knew it all the time, you know, like that type of thing. And I realized that's not how I want to spend my time in the hobby, right? I, I, I'd I rather just sell the, buy, buy those cards, flip those cards, sell those at shows. And the cards that I buy for myself, they're going to sit here on the wall and I'm going to enjoy them every day. Even when I'm talking to you, I could see my, you know, my background. I could see the cards that really make make me happy. So when I hear people like a lot of times they they're making these investments in cards, I think to myself, you know, how what's their feeling on it? Like I know my feeling was like my like stocks and investments. Like I was, you know, I'd watch them every day. Are they going up? Are they going down? And I felt, you know, this hobby was here for me to relax and enjoy it and make friends and and you know that that I didn't want to I didn't want it to be that serious, right? But you hear people talking all the time, like this is this is an investment. I'm buying these cards, I'm putting them away, and you know, like they're buying a stock or a piece of property or a nice piece of art. Let's that's that's another way to put it, you know, like art or something like that. Something that not not everybody buys into, right? Not there's people that would like I, I've never really bought an expensive piece piece of art that I say, but I really have because I have this cards, right? And, and that could be an expensive piece of, piece of art. So that, that's kind of why, I, like, like I figured I asked people like, like you, you know, these markets, you know, you know, these numbers, you know, the data, you could probably tell me, you know, and the listeners like these five or 10 people are probably going to do really well over the next few years because I can see the data coming through versus these people that the, the, the bottom's probably going to drop out on that. Yeah, uh, Ken, I thought those were some really interesting points. I only disagree with one, which was the last one, which is that I, I have no clue who's going to do well in this hobby. And yeah. I get- Don't start wrong. messaging Chris and ask him who, who he should invest in. He's Look, not your new broker. <laughs> and yeah, and any, you know, I uh, I find it, like, I, this, is, uh, this is not disrespect to people who- um, do take a very transactional approach to the hobby and or who look at cards very strongly from the point of view of what's their value likely to be in the future. Because I understand that that is a, a meaningful part of any collectibles market is like uh, Shirley Mueller has a book on the psychology of collecting and she does a really nice job of sort of systematically organizing the different types of collectors and the different properties that they have and, and people who participate in collectibles markets as well. And she notes that like some of the things that really get people excited about participating in collectibles markets is one, the opportunity to find a deal. So if somebody can leverage their knowledge or just being in the right place at the right time to get a bargain on something, and they know the market and they know what it should have sold for and they're able to get it for less. That's something that gives them pleasure that lights up the areas of their brain that are associated with, uh, with happiness. You know, that, that's sort of the approach she takes is uh, a scientific or a psychological approach. And there's also people who enjoy the experience of buying something, identifying something early and then seeing it raise in value and then selling it at a higher price than what they acquired it for. And even though that's not what I love to do in the hobby, um, you know, you can, every card that I own in my collection, like setting aside the five rows of stuff that Christine and I have of stuff that we pulled from packs and boxes, setting that stuff aside, the stuff that's in mine and Christina's collections for the most part, except for Christina's Maxi Kleber collection, the rest of it is in my um, public showcase in, in card letters. So you can go see all the cards that I own. And you can see just how poorly of an investor I would make <laughs> if, that, if that were the uh, if that were the goal. Um, you know. So, but but even me, even someone like me, I can't deny 
that there is this satisfaction, this pleasure, this excitement that comes from having purchased a car at price X and then knowing that if I wanted to go sell it today, it might get 2X. There, like, that's not the primary motivation for me. It is for some, it's not for me. But I can't deny that it feels good and it's fun. Uh, and it just makes it even a little more fun to collect cards. Yep, yep. Give yourself a little pat on the back. Right. right? So, yeah, I knew it all the time. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> all right. Uh, again, switching lanes. Um, your thoughts. Now, you were like the OG, right? You and Josh, the OG of, of, of podcasts, right? Before there were a million podcasts out there, you guys were had your podcast going. Um and before, I, I mean, since you you started back then, it was House of Jordans, right? And you guys are doing some other things now. But your thoughts on content today, right? Versus when you guys started, and I I, I don't know how many people were actually doing it then versus now, where. I mean, there's a lot more of us out there creating content today and you don't have to worry about hurting my feelings, you know, (laughs) please be honest. (laughs) No, I know. I, your style is great. Um, you just, I, you just, uh, you, you're more level-headed than most, which is pleasant to consume from a content perspective. And you're just, you're very easy to talk to. I've gotten myself in trouble criticizing hobby content creators once or twice. Um, So, and, and, you know, I've learned a lesson from that, which was not that, you know, criticism is fine, but it's, um, it's, it's about sort of respecting your peers and ways in which you offer the criticisms. And, um, you know, at, at the same time, like, it's not that serious, you know, like people can get content out of that and then it creates interest, intrigue, drama, so on and so forth. And it's yeah. cool. But, uh, but I also felt sort of bad about one, at least one or, once or twice when I've sort of made sweeping criticisms of the hobby content community. I just sort of felt bad that it wasn't, that it was received as, um, as like, it's is, is it not as constructive, but instead is like insulting. Mm-hmm. But that ain't going to stop me, Ken. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm still, I felt bad about it. I want to get better about how I do it. But I still have strong opinions on this. And, uh, but I do, I also do respect content creators as peers of mine and the, as content creators, as hobbyists, as collectors. But, uh, I do think that there's, there's still room and and look, I, I'm not fixing this problem. All right. I mean, the show that we do, that Josh and I do it, the brilliance of our show is that, um, all of the good ideas come from the community, the, the people who submit the questions, you know, if, if the show was nothing more than just me reading a hundred questions that got submitted over the course of a week, it would, it would be about, it would be a good show because it's just people telling me the, the things that they want to hear put over the airwaves. Yep. And, yep. and, you know, and it comes from all different points of view. You know, sometimes it's somebody who just like wants a card that they really like or that they own to be mentioned. Sometimes it's a pent up frustration with being mistreated in the hobby or a pent up frustration stemming from things happening in the hobby that they just don't like. Sometimes it's fun stuff like, you know, let's talk about sports for a little while or who do you think is going to, you know, be a breakout athlete this year or, or and how's that going to impact the hobby and their cards? You know? But that, so on our show, like the audience is doing the work and it's, it's still community oriented and it's just sort of general topics and stuff. But I think that the room that we have as a card community um, to in one area is in our analysis of sports. So I think other adjacent um, sports adjacent content communities like gambling podcasts or beat reporters for specific teams or people who do podcasts who cover the national national stories and sports, they just do a little bit better job than we do at having a knowledge of what's happening in the sports that goes beyond the headlines, mm-hmm. you know, and that, and I, I get like one, and one of the reasons why the hobby has a hard time with this is because very few of us do it professionally and almost none of us get, have a professional 
I don't think anybody in the hobby is professionally paid to know sports. Um, so in the hobby, we have to take shortcuts. We have to go off of headlines. We have to just watch sports center and sort of get our opinion. But, but that's one place I think the hobby could improve is, uh, is our knowledge and our expertise in sports. I think we deserve a spot at the table. I think gambling podcasts have a, have a spot at the big, at the, at the adults table in the sports conversation. I think, Fantasy sports podcasts have a seat at the table at the adults table of sports. And I think obviously beat reporters and, you know, national reporters, people who get votes on awards and sports like they have a seat at the adults table. We should have one, too. Um, Our industry is enormous. (laughs) We went over that. We should have a seat at that table, too. But we haven't quite produced the content or the thought leaders that would merit that seat if I'm being completely honest. Um, but could I see a day in the future? This is going to sound silly, but I, I have silly aspirations. Could I see a day in the future where a card collector content creator is one of the voices on an ESPN roundtable at three in the afternoon discussing the NBA today? Right. Why the hell not? Yeah, yeah. Why not? Why can't we have that? You know? So that's one area that I have a criticism. And then the other area is just that I think there's so much room for growth in terms of um, teaching about the history of sets and the hobby and not just the history, but also, you know, like I'll give a shout out to one guy um, who is not like a close friend or anything, but I just think he's, he's onto something is Victor Roman um, who focuses his content around what defines a rookie card. And he's got a system and he's got a multi-page document that I've, that I've looked at. That's really interesting. And, he, and then like, he makes his content around like, what are Shohei Otani's true rookie cards? Mm-hmm. And he gives his argument for why. And then, you know, it all relates back to his system and stuff. And I think he's, he's created a little blueprint for where, you know, we have this, we have this in the hobby. We have a very special knowledge that we have that newcomers don't have. You know, that we that we can give them like we can define what a true rookie card is. We can, you know, there's been like there's this 86 Fleer, 84 star debate with the Jordan rookie. Which one's the rookie? And like, you know, people coming into the hobby should understand the sides of that argument before the 86 Fleer is crammed down their throat or the 84 star is crammed down their throat. But it's been a lot more 86 Fleer crammed. And people should know they should be able to hear the multiple sides of that. Before they conclude what the true rig and so on. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, there, there's a few opinions on that. <laughs> and, and it's interesting now because you mentioned that 86. Could you imagine what, what defines a 2022 or a 2023? rookie card right a true rookie card because you know there's thousands of them in so many different sets of a player that you know who, yeah, everyone's a rookie card but which one was the true rookie card right now now it's the rpa and which one's the true rpa and is it is it still to 99 or is it you know something different so yeah ken let me throw one thing in there quickly as well final thought on that question um let me so, so let me balance sort of my my constructive suggestions with with a compliment to hobby contribution, I I think, and this this definitely applies to you. This applies to Rob. This applies to lots of great content creators in our space. One of the things that we do better than any other content community that I'm aware of is narratives. We tell the story of our experiences within our niche community and our thought processes. Like before um, I came on this before I came on this show, I was catching up on your most recent episode where you were laying out a strategic approach to collecting hockey over the past year and then sort of detailing some of the mistakes that you felt that you made in the previous year and some of the things you thought you did well. And one of the concepts that you were focusing on was duplicates. Like when you really believe in something, you you know, you probably should have loaded up on it. And, you know, there, that level of transparency and that depth of thought and the reflective nature of it, you don't get that in gambling podcasts related to sports. You don't get it in fantasy. You don't, you just, you don't get it anywhere else. Yeah. The narrative side of it, telling our experiences, telling our stories, revealing our thought processes, the genuine excitement that card collecting gives us that I just don't think 
other categories have um, in the same way yeah. is is one of the most special and captivating parts about content surrounding sports cards is, is stuff just like that, where we just, we're explaining our, our experiences, our points of view, and we're giving our personal narrative. And I, I think we do a really good job at content like that. Yeah. Well said, well said, Man, thank you. Thank you for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Uh, tell everyone if they want to reach out to you where they can, uh, where they can find you. Sure. Um, probably the easiest way to reach me is Instagram, where my uh, username is Chris underscore H-O-J. That was short for House of Jordans, H-O-J. Not my last name, although some people have thought it was. <laughs> um, that's that's probably the easiest, and most direct way. Yeah, I would just go with that. Great. Great. Thanks again, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ken. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. And if you like what you hear, please like, definitely subscribe. And most importantly, tell a friend and spread the word. Until next time, take care of yourselves and everyone around you.